Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that the Exodus gives us to demonstrate your faithfulness throughout history. We ask that you would help us to be faithful representatives of the precious truth that you have entrusted to us. We ask that you will further equip us to share this truth with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I decided to call this uh, presentation Unraveling the Exodus. Christians who haven't looked into the Exodus very much might say, what is there to unravel? The Bible says it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. How, how complicated can this be? Well, it's good that you believe the Bible, but from an apologetic standpoint, that really doesn't work. If all you can say is, well, I really can't point to any evidence to support my beliefs, but I just believe it. Aren't you impressed? Well, unbelievers won't be impressed. And you can't really expect them to be either. You don't believe every telemarketer who gets you on the phone, do you? In 1 Peter, it tells us, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I just believe is not a reason. In 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter told us, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If an unbeliever is not aware of any evidence to support your beliefs, to him it seems like you are just giving him a bunch of cleverly devised myths. Given the importance of the Exodus in the biblical narrative, it's worthwhile to spend a little time unraveling the Exodus. I don't expect you to have all of the answers, but you should at least become familiar enough with the issues so that you can direct unbelievers to those who do can give them some answers. The Exodus, an extremely significant event. An extremely significant event for Israel. Israel didn't begin to take shape as a nation until the Exodus. And an extremely significant event in salvation history. If Israel had not come out of Egypt, we would not have a Savior. It's that simple. The Gospel writer Matthew, quoting from the prophet Hosea, said, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus, as the ultimate Israelite, the ultimate representative of Israel, came out of Egypt, both with the people and, and uh, as a fulfillment in, in New Testament prophecy. Each year at Passover time, the Jewish people tried to impress upon the younger generation that you shouldn't think of the Exodus as just an event that occurred more than 3,000 years ago. You should think of the Exodus as something that you were personally involved in. Not just our ancestors centuries ago, but you personally should think of yourself as coming out of Egypt. We as Christians should think of the Exodus in that way also. As part of our experience, the Exodus the coming out of Egypt is a picture, a type of what we have experienced. 
just as God miraculously intervened and made it possible for the Israelites to come out of Egypt, so God miraculously intervened and made it possible for us to come out of sin. And just as Pharaoh, just as, as Israel escaped from the control of Pharaoh, we have also, by the power of God, been enabled to escape the power of sin. So just as God delivered Israel, he has delivered us. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We were in bondage. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Before I get to the Exodus itself, I want to explain some things to you that will help you to understand how Egyptology, the study of ancient Egypt, arrived in its present state, how we came to where we are today. Because this will help you to understand how there can possibly be such an incredible variety of different views on the Exodus. You see, the Exodus is not like some other issues that we've looked at on World View Week on Wednesday. When we say, this is what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, and this is what the Bible teaches, that's an easy call for us, right? I mean, we don't have any trouble deciding where we stand on those issues. When we say, this is what Mormonism teaches, and this is what the Bible teaches, that's an easy call for us. We don't have any difficulty deciding where we stand on those issues. But when we come to the Exodus and the many issues that are raised by the Exodus, what we find is, with each of these issues, this is what some Christians believe, this is what some Christians believe, and this is what some Christians believe. No matter which view you decide is the best view, there will be other Christians who strongly disagree with you. So it's not just a simple matter of unbelievers versus believers. So let's get some background. When an archaeologist discovers an ancient inscription, and he proclaims to the world, this inscription is from the reign of Pharaoh so-and-so of the umpteenth dynasty. He ruled at the time of thus and such. How does he know that? Let's, let's pull back the curtain a little bit and look at some of the inner workings of Egyptology. In 1797, the French Emperor Napoleon, Queen Bonaparte, was at war with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was based in what is today Turkey but it controlled much of the Middle East, including Egypt. When Napoleon invaded Egypt, he not only took his army with him, but he also took along 175 scholars to study the old monuments of Egypt. Europe was just fascinated with the um, 
mysteries of Egypt. They knew there was some really old stuff in Egypt, some really cool stuff, but they didn't know very much about it at that time. They were hungry to learn more. So even in the midst of a war, Napoleon wanted to learn all he could about ancient Egypt. One of the Frenchmen who took up that fascination was a man, man named Jean-Francois Champollion. Champollion is today known as the father of Egyptology, the study of ancient Egypt. In 1822, he finally cracked the code. He deciphered the famous Rosetta Stone that Napoleon's men had discovered earlier. This made it possible for modern people to read the hieroglyphics, the writings of the ancient Egyptians. But for our purposes, here, here tonight, Champollion did something else that has greatly impacted Egyptology down to this day. When you're comparing the biblical, the biblical uh, chronology, the biblical timeline given to us in the biblical narrative, when you're comparing that with a chronology developed from other sources, you look for anchor points. You try to find some person or event in the biblical chronology that you can tie to some person or event in the secular chronology. So you can link the two together. Because otherwise, you're just left with two independent floating chronologies and you don't know how one relates to the other. In the Bible, in, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, clear on up into the time of David and Solomon, whenever the Bible talks about a pharaoh of Egypt, it doesn't give his name. It just calls him Pharaoh. So we have to try to figure out from other factors who that pharaoh was, which pharaoh that was. But finally, in the time of the divided kingdom, when Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, finally were given a name. This is in 1 Kings chapter 14. It says, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that's the son of Solomon, this is just the beginning of the divided kingdom, King Shishak of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Now it seems that this Shishak didn't actually enter the city of Jerusalem. He just brought his army up there and surrounded it and demanded that, it, that they pay him off. He said, either you pay me off or I'm going to attack the city. So Rehoboam took the easy way out and, and paid him off. So he took the gold and silver and went back to Egypt. But our work isn't done because this name Shishak is a name that was given to him by the Jewish people. This is what the name that they gave him in Hebrew. So if you look for that exact name in the Egyptian records, you won't find it. But Champollion searched through the records of Egypt and he found a name, a pharaoh's name, which was similar to Shishak. So he figured that must be the Shishak of the Bible. That pharaoh's name was Shoshank. 
So he concluded that Shoshank is Shisha. That is an identification which has stuck with us to this day. To this day, most Egyptologists think that Champollion got it right when he identified Shoshank as Shisha. But not everybody agrees with that. Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell of the Answers of Genesis thinks that Thutmosis III, an 18th dynasty pharaoh, was Shisha. Remember that uh, Shoshank was, was in the 22nd dynasty, but she thinks that Thutmosis III in the 18th dynasty was Shisha. David Down agrees that Thutmosis III was Shisha. But Dr. David Roll believes that Ramesses II, an 18th or 19th dynasty pharaoh, was Shisha. So you'll, you'll see this all along, that there's a consensus view, but there are those who don't agree. There, there are dissenters. The identification of Shishak was one factor that shaped Egyptology as it is today. The other, a second factor was Manitho's king list. Who is Manitho and what is his king's list? Manitho was a pagan priest in Egypt. He served under a Ptolemaic ruler. Remember the Ptolemies? When uh, Alexander the Great died, his empire was divided into four sections among his four of his top generals. And the southern region, Egypt, went to, the, to uh, Ptolemy. So all of the pharaohs, all the leaders that descended from him are called Ptolemies. So he lived, Manitho lived in that time. He lived in the third century BC. He compiled a list of the 30 dynasties that had ruled Egypt. There were other dynasties after that, but these 30 are the native Egyptian pharaohs. After that, the Persians took over, and then the Greeks took over, and the Romans took over. So the, these 30 are the native Egyptian pharaohs. The problem is further complicated by the fact that none of Manitho's writings has survived down to the present day. None of them. The only reason that we know about Manitho and his king list is because other ancient writers wrote about him. They referred to him. So that would include uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century AD, Sepsis Julius Africanus, a Christian traveler of the second and third centuries AD, Eusebius, the famous church historian in the fourth century AD, and George Sincellus, a monk and church historian of the uh, eighth and ninth centuries AD. So from these outside references to Manitho, Egyptologists have constructed a list of the dynasties that ruled Egypt. A dynasty is just a, a ruling family. So one man would be Pharaoh, and then his son would be the next Pharaoh, and his son would be the next Pharaoh, and so on, until somebody overthrew the Pharaoh and started a new dynasty. And it wasn't always violent. Sometimes the Pharaoh just didn't have any descendants. So one of his relatives or one of his government officials would, would take over and start a new dynasty. But mainstream Egyptology 
takes Manetho's king's king list and just puts all of the 30 dynasties in order, in sequence, one after the other, one through 30. But you guessed it, not everybody agrees with that. So, as, as I said, the, the standard conventional arrangement of the, of the 30 dynasties is just in order, one after the other. But there are those who say that that's not right. Some of the dynasties were overlapping. And sometimes there were two dynasties ruling simultaneously, one in northern Egypt, one in Syria. So with this rearranging the dynasties, they're able to compress Egyptian history into a much, much shorter time. And just to give you an illustration of the implications that that, that has for Bible history, the Bible timeline, I give you the case of Hatshepsut. There weren't very many women pharaohs in Egypt, but there were a few. One of the most famous is Hatshepsut. Now, if you go by the conventional, the standard arrangement of the dynasties, th this is what you come up with. Now, everybody agrees that Hatshepsut was in the 18th dynasty. But what they don't agree on is when the 18th dynasty ruled. So if you go by the conventional chronology, the conventional standard arrangement of the dynasties, you believe that uh, Hatshepsut was born in the, the latter part of the 16th century BC, and she lived on into the 15th century BC. She came to the throne in 1478 BC. She was probably just a teenager at the time that she came to the throne. One uh, Egyptologist referred to her as the first great woman in history of whom we are aware. Her reign over Egypt was, was quite successful. It was quite good for the people of, Israel, of, of Egypt. But if you believe that the arrangement of the dynasties needs to be revised, then you believe that Hatshepsut lived in the 10th century BC. And that she came to the throne about 950 BC. And so what you say? Well, this has some big implications if we're trying to construct a Bible timeline. Right. So who was Hatshepsut in relation to the Bible? Well, Hatshepsut was, if you go by the conventional chronology, the conventional arrangement of the, of the dynasties, some of those people will say that Hatshepsut was the Pharaoh's daughter who drew the infant Moses out of the Nile River. But if you believe in it is necessary to do a revised chronology, you need to rearrange the dynasties, then Hatshepsut was the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, Elizabeth Solomon. That's a difference of more than 500 years between these two events. So, critics of Manetho's king list, critics of his writings, say that they are unsuitable for establishing a reliable chronology because, first of all, they were never intended to be a chronological account of Egyptian history. Eusebius, the church historian, did not believe that Manetho intended for his regnal years to be added up consecutively, as they are by conventional Egyptology. 
And also, they are inconsistent with contemporary sources. In other words, Manetho is writing long after all of this stuff happened. If we go back and look at the actual records that those dynasties left, they don't always match up with Manetho's list. Okay, so we looked at the identification of Shishak in, in, the, in Egyptology, and we've looked at Manetho's king list. In 1904, Edward Meyer, who was a German professor of ancient history, developed what is called the Sothic Cycle Theory. What is the Sothic Cycle Theory? If you do much reading about ancient Egypt, you'll see the phrase, the helical rising of Sirius. What is that? There was a star, there is a star, there still is, <laughs> last I checked. There, there's a star called the Dog Star. The ancient Egyptians knew this as Sothis. Modern astronomers know it as Sirius. If you've ever heard of Sirius FM, satellite radio, that's where they get the name, Sirius, from the star. <laughs> so, Edward Meyer believed that this was very significant to the ancient Egyptians. Because here's what we mean by the heliacal rising of Sirius. Sirius rises on the eastern horizon just before the sunrise. So the sun sort of follows it into the sky. And this happens on New Year's Day, which for the ancient Egyptians was in the spring, at the time that the Nile River floods. So Edward Meyer believed that this event was very significant to ancient Egypt. But, but here's, the, here's the really important part. This doesn't happen every year. This only happens once every 1,460 years. So Edward Meyer believed that you could date the events of ancient Egyptian history by how far <coughs> it was, how long it was since the last political rising of Sirius. He found a Roman writer in the third century AD, named Censorinus, who said that the great Sothic year occurred in AD 140. So what he did was he just counted backwards from AD 140 in multiples of 1,460, and he came up with 1320 BC, 2780 BC, and 4240 BC. So he believed that the significant event to the ancient Egyptians, at least he thought it was a significant event, could be used to date the events of Egyptian history. But you guessed it, not everybody agrees with that. Critics of the Soviet cycle say it is not reliable because it is based on contradictory starting points. Censorinius, the one that Edward Meyer used, said the great Sophic year occurred in AD 140. But Theon, a 4th century astronomer, 
says it occurred in 26 BC. So there's contradictory information there. The other thing is it has little historical support. History gives no hint that the Egyptians regularly dated important events from the rising of Sophus. The critics point out that when the ancient Egyptians referred to the coming forth of Sophus, maybe all they're talking about is the, the idol Sophus being taken out of his shrine and being paraded around for everyone to see. If that is the case, then it's not of use at all in determining dates. So, now you have a little bit of insight into the state of Egyptology today. Sir Alan Gardner, who was one of the premier Egyptologists of the early and mid 20th century, had this to say about the state of Egyptology. Even when full use has been made of the king list and of such subsidiary sources as have survived, the indispensable dynastic framework of Egyptian history shows lamentable gaps and many a doubtful attribution. It must never be forgotten that we are dealing with a civilization thousands of years old and one of which only tiny remnants have survived. He went on to say, what is proudly advertised as Egyptian history is merely a collection of rags and tatters. That was Sir Alan Gardner. A contemporary scholar, Dr. David Roll, had this to say. The only real solution to the archaeological problems which have been created is to pull down the whole structure and start out again, reconstructing from the foundations upward. So as we look at each of the issues raised by the Exodus, keep this tension in mind. The tension between those who accept Egyptology as it is and those who don't. Tonight we're only going to look at one issue. We're going to look at four more next week. But the one that we're going to look at tonight is a big one. Dr. Charles Ailing, who is a history professor right over here at the University of Northwestern, had this to say about the date of the Exodus. That's, that's the issue that we're going to look at. He said, there is perhaps no single problem in Hebrew history which has been contested as long or as hotly as the question of the date of the Exodus. So it's a big issue, and it's a very controversial one. When we talk about the date of the Exodus, those scholars who try to determine the date of the Exodus generally fall into two camps. Those who believe in an early date of the Exodus and those who believe in a late date for the Exodus. What do we mean by early and late? How early and how late? Well, those who believe in an early date for the Exodus believe that it occurred in the 15th century BC. Most of the people who, who believe in an early date think that it occurred in around the middle of the 15th century BC, 1445, 1446, 1447. There are a few that would place it much earlier, like 1490 or 1491. 
but most would place it in the, in the 1440s. When we talk about a late date, we're talking about the 13th century BC. So estimates there range from 1280 to 1220 BC. So you can see there's about a 200 year separation between these two accounts. We'll begin with the late date first because that is the one accepted by mainstream Egyptology. Most of those who believe in a, in a late date think that Ramesses II was the pharaoh of the Exodus. So he, he was born, according to the conventional chronology, in the late 14th century BC, and he lived on into the uh, into the 13th century BC. Uh, a little bit about him. He began his reign in 1279 BC, according to the conventional chronology. He's often regarded as the greatest, most celebrated, and most powerful pharaoh of the Egyptian empire. His reign of 67 years was the second longest of the Egyptian pharaohs. There was one 6th century, or six, excuse me, 6th dynasty pharaoh, who, who ruled for a longer period of time, but he had a head start. He was six years old when he became virile. So, <laughs> so the idea that that Ramesses II was the pharaoh of the Exodus is just deeply ingrained in our in our culture. But by the way, you'll you'll see at least three different spellings of of Ramesses. You might see it with the. Uh, double S's like it is here, you might see it with just one S, or you might see it without the E, just Ramesses rather than Ramesses. It's all the same, the same fellow. If you've ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston and Yule Brenner, that's the premise of this movie, is that Ramesses was the pharaoh of the Exodus. The producer of the movie, Cecil B. DeMille, consulted with the experts, and of course the experts told him that definitely Ramesses was the pharaoh of the Exodus. There was a, um, a television program a few years ago, and this whole program was about whether the firstborn son of Ramesses died in the way that the Bible says he died. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you spend lots of time and money trying to find out how Ramses' son died, you should investigate whether Ramses really was the pharaoh of the Exodus. Because if Ramses wasn't the pharaoh of the Exodus, how his son died is irrelevant to the Exodus. It's irrelevant to whether the Bible is true. But that is just accepted as a given by many Egyptologists and by the public. The primary reason that people believe that Ramesses was the pharaoh of the Exodus, and therefore they believe in the late date of the Exodus, is Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. 
Therefore they, they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them, the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Etham and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. So the reasoning goes, well, if this city is what's called Ramesses, then it had to be during the reign of Ramesses. That kind of makes sense. But to explain what, what I think is going on here, perhaps the best way that I can do it is to give you an analogy. If I tell you that I'm going to give you the history of Willow River, Wisconsin, you will say, Willow River, where is that? I've never heard of it. But if I explain to you that Willow River was the original name of a city which today is called Hudson, Wisconsin, then you will say, oh, Hudson, Wisconsin, I know where that is. Now I know what you're talking about. But when I call it Willow River, even though it's a town that you know something about, you didn't know what I was talking about. Well, I think a similar thing is going on here. You see, in Moses' day, this city would have been called Avaris. That was the original name of the city. But a later biblical writer, probably Ezra, went back into the Torah and updated some of the place names so that the people of his day would know what Moses was talking about. Because if you read Avaris in, in Ezra's day, you wouldn't know what that meant. But when they said Ramses, then you would know, because centuries before the time of Ezra, the name was changed. Ramses during the reign of Ramses. We can see this happening in other places in the Torah as well. This is in the time of Abraham. Some kings from Mesopotamia came over and did battle with this region of Sodom and Gomorrah where Abraham's nephew Lot was living. And they carried off captives including Lot and his family. Well, when Abraham found out about it, he got his men together and went after them, chased after them, the uh, kings that were carrying these captives back to Mesopotamia. And it says he went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. As far as Dan. Now think about this. This is in the time of Abraham. This is long before Isaac was born, long before Jacob was born, and long before the 12 sons of Jacob were born, including Dan. So why are we calling this place Dan if Dan hasn't even been born yet? Well, I think this is another case where Ezra went back and updated the place names, the names that would have been familiar to the people of his day. In this particular case, we can even see how this happened. The name of the place wasn't changed to Dan until the time of, of uh, Joshua. When Joshua and the Israelites entered the Promised Land and began the conquest, 
Dan, like all of the other tribes, was given an allotment of land. But they weren't able to push the Canaanites out of their parcel of land. So they decided to just give up and move further north. And they settled the land up there. We read about this in Joshua 18. When the territory of the Danites was lost to them, the Danites went up and fought against Lashem. And after capturing it and putting it to the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Lashem Dan, after their ancestor Dan. So the name was changed. So it would have been called Lashem or something else back in the time of Moses, but later it was changed to Dan, and then Ezra went back into the Torah and updated some of the place names. So, the fact that this city is called Ramses doesn't prove that Ramses did it happen during the reign of Ramses. So, we can demonstrate that the fact that the town is called Ramses doesn't necessarily prove that Ramses was the king that it happened that it occurred during his reign when, when Ramses was Pharaoh. And here's the real clincher for me. It's called Ramses back in Genesis. Joseph settled his father and his brothers and granted them a holding in the land of Egypt, in the best part of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had instructed. So even if even if Ramses is the Pharaoh of the Exodus, was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, he couldn't have also been the Pharaoh who lived in Joseph's time. That's a long time before. So it's called Ramses even back then. So the, the mere fact that it's called Ramses doesn't prove that the Exodus occurred during the reign of Ramses. So we can not only demonstrate that Ramses wasn't necessarily the Pharaoh of the Exodus, it's a pretty certain thing as far as I'm concerned that he wasn't the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, as far as the controversy between a late date and an early date, I point you to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. In the 480th year, after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeb, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So, when Solomon began to build the temple, it was in the fourth year of his reign, and that was 480 years from the Exodus. <clears throat> Most scholars agree that this fourth year of the reign of Solomon was about 966 B.C. If you count back, 480 years from 966 B.C. 
you're not going to land in the 1200s. You're going to land much earlier. You're going to land about 1446 BC, which is why I think that the early date for the Exodus is correct rather than the late date. Now, I should point out that those who believe in a late date try to get around this by saying, well, 480 years doesn't really mean 480 years. What it really means is 12 generations. And they're figuring 40 years to a generation. Well, we all know that a generation isn't really 40 years. You know, it doesn't take 40 years to grow up and start a family. It's more in the range of 20 years. So they try to say that 480 years doesn't really mean 480 years. Well, I think it really does mean 480 years. So I think that 480 years before Solomon began building the temple is when the Exodus occurred. I was going to say, too, that whenever I say I prefer this view as opposed to this view, that doesn't mean that I have any hostility or animosity toward Christians who have whole other views. Uh, I know some of these scholars personally, and I count them as dear brothers in Christ. Uh, so just because we disagree on a few non-Salvific issues, that doesn't mean that we're bitter enemies. An example of, of, a, of a Christian scholar who does believe in the late date for the Exodus would be uh, James Hoffmeyer. He's an example of, of a Christian who does believe in a, in a late date for the Exodus. But there are many who don't. Those are the only, uh, that, that's the only issue that I wanted to cover tonight. But I'll give you a little preview of what we're going to look at next time. If Ramesses was not the Pharaoh of the Exodus, then who was? We're going to look some more at the perplexing problem of who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And we're going to look at the length of the oppression. In other words, how long were the children of Israel in the land of Egypt? On the face of it, that might seem like a relatively easy question to answer, but uh, not really. So we'll take a look at that. We'll also take a look at the route of the Exodus. In recent years, this has become a very controversial issue. For many years, it wasn't much of a controversy, but in recent years, it has become a very heated controversy. Where was the Red Sea crossing? And where was Mount Sinai located? These have become very controversial, very heated issues. And then finally, we'll look at the number in the Exodus. How many people came out of Israel in the Exodus? Once again, on the face of it, that might seem like a relatively easy question to answer, but Trust me, it's not. We'll get into that.
So those those are the issues, the controversies that we'll look at next week. So I, I realize I've, I've given you a lot of information. <laughs> and uh, for some of you, it may be kind of like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> um, this has been a particular passion of mine. I've been looking at this stuff for more than 30 years. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's been more like 40 years. <laughs> so um, I, I realize I'm giving you a lot of stuff tonight and next week, but it's kind of a challenge for me because I wanted I wanted people to make people realize how complex this, these issues are, but at the same time, I don't want people to go away thinking, boy, this is so complicated, I can never understand it. Because you, you can understand it. It's just, it just takes some time and some effort. I think that's one of the reasons that God made some of the things in the Bible so complicated. I mean, some of the things are easy to understand, but some of the things are complex and they take a while to understand. If that were not the case, we would just read through the Bible once and say, there, been there, done that, I don't need to think about it anymore. But there are always problems and complications and questions that, that we have. And it's always worthwhile to spend time learning as much as you can about them. So, is there anything that, any questions? Yes, sir. Um, what are the, the most solid touch points between the Bible and known secular history I don't like Sennacherib, and you were saying we're pretty certain about Solomon, but if you read enough commentaries and uh, theological journal articles, everything's disputed, as you know. Mm -hmm. and, and some say, well, we have no idea about David. Yeah. And then, of course, then you wouldn't about Solomon. But aren't there places where this is clear and really not disputed, and if we go a little bit back from there, we can get to somewhere solid, closer, like you did there with Solomon. Yes. <laughs> so how do we know for sure the date of Solomon? Well, it basically involves synchronizing the history of Israel with other surrounding cultures, the exactly. Assyrians and exactly. the Babylonians and the... Hittites and so on. The Assyrian Empire. Yeah. Okay. And so are any of those things besides outside, you know, the critics are gonna think Jesus didn't live, you know. But, yeah. Well I mean the, the see the the secular Egyptologists and archaeologists and historians will tell you that there's no evidence that the that the Exodus ever happened. <laughs> well, what about Israel? <laughs> Well, the, the, the secular archaeologists are called minimalists. The reason they're called minimalists is because they believe that the Bible is virtually worthless as far as providing us with any accurate historical right. information. <laughs> Those are the minimalists. That's totally unfair. Yeah. yeah. 
But see, you, you can see how they use circular reasoning because they're just certain that if anything like the Exodus occurred, it occurred during the reign of Ramesses. So when they look at the period of Ramesses and they don't find any evidence of large numbers of Semitic people living in Egypt, well, then, well there you have it. The, the, Bible, the Bible is wrong. It didn't really happen. But with, with regard to the Exodus, that happens a lot. That people are looking in the wrong, at the wrong time, and so they don't find what they want to find. And they say, that, that proves it. Okay. It's just like with, um, with uh, Jericho in the conquest. So um, a woman archaeologist named Kathleen Kenyon did some dig, digging at uh, Jericho in the 1950s. And she said that the exodus and the conquest couldn't have happened. Because at the time that Joshua would have come to Jericho, it was already destroyed. There was nobody living there. <laughs> but the reason that she says that is because she's assuming that Ramesses was the pharaoh of the exodus. And so 40 years later, there's nobody there. So they're looking at the in the wrong time period. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. So there's a, that gives other reasons to look at that earlier date. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So so that's so so we're, we're looking when we when we're looking for when did the Exodus occur? We're looking for into Egyptian history and saying when is there evidence of a large Semitic population living in in Egypt? And and what where where is there evidence that this Semitic population multiplied, multiplied greatly. And uh, where, where is there uh, evidence that there was there were these uh, judgments upon Egypt? Do we find any evidence in Egyptian history of the the plagues from the Egyptian point of view? And then is there evidence that? Uh, at one time, there was a large Semitic population, and then after that, there wasn't. So, so we can look at these things, you know. And if you're if you're just looking, you know, with blinders at the time of, of Ramesses, you're not going to see anything else. You're going to say, "Well, the Bible isn't true because there's no evidence that it happened." <laughs> wow. So that's. Thank you. This is great. I'm sorry, are there, are there any other questions? <laughs> well, I'm still thinking about, about the fact that we can't even agree on the spelling of the pharaoh. <laughs> 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 that's just kind of discouraging. How can you not know the spelling? Well, you see it so many different ways. Well, that seems pretty simple to me. Well, remember that we're trying to. We're trying to put Egyptian hieroglyphs into English. So whenever you, you try to go from one language to another, there are questions about how to, how to spell it. And the, the, the situation is even, made even more complex. 
by two things. First of all, many pharaohs have more than one name. Because it's just like the Pope. The, the Pope has a name, but then he, when he becomes Pope, he takes a different name. So, Carol Wojtyla became John Paul II. And so many of these pharaohs had a name growing up, but when they became pharaoh, they took a different name. That's one thing. And then, there's, <laughs> to add to the confusion, many of the names that we know the pharaohs by are really their Greek names, not their Egyptian names. <laughs> See, because much that we initially knew about Egypt came to us through the Greeks. They're the ones, Herodotus and these people told us about the Egyptians. So like the, the pharaoh in the fourth dynasty who built the Great Pyramid, the Greeks called him Kephren. Kephren. But the Egyptians called him Khufu. So it's, it's confusing. <laughs> What kind of chronicles are there from ancient Egypt that were written, you know, at the time of these events? Are there, are there a lot of chronicles, or are they all on stone, or are they all on... Well, they're, they're on stone because that long ago, nothing like papyrus has lasted, but not very much anyway, from too far back. But the uh, many of the pharaohs, you know, they didn't have... CNN, you know, they didn't. <laughs> really? So, so they, they wanted to tell the populace about their accomplishments. And, and consequently, their, what they wrote on, their, on, the, uh, on, the, on stone is sometimes rather braggadocious. I mean, it, you know, they made themselves look better than they really were. And it's, you know, they, they wanted to give themselves good publicity and then, he, he's the pharaoh, so who can argue with him? If he says, I, I defeated these people and these people and these people, how, how can you dispute it <laughs> and keep your head? <laughs> so so that we, we have some records from these dynasties, from, from the actual time period. Do they all have the same writing system throughout the, all these dynasties? or I don't fully know the answer to that, but I think it's pretty much the same. I mean, that that's how uh, Champollion was able to finally decipher the Rosetta, Rosetta, Rosetta Stone, is because there were these three languages, Greek and hieroglyphics, and then there was Demotic, which is a, a cursive form of Egyptian writing. What started you down this path four years ago? Um, was it a certain incident, or just well, stumbled I, upon it, or? I think it was just the idea that if this event and other biblical events, if they really happen, there should be evidence of it. I mean, as Bob says, cold, hard, sober truth. I mean, it should be there if, if, if it really happened. And then, as I began to dig into it, it became frustrating because I could see that that secularists who are saying that the Exodus didn't happen 
the main reason they're saying that it didn't happen is because they're looking at their own time period. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you said Ezra was the one responsible for changing the names. Well, that's not absolutely certain, but, sure. but I know that he did, you know, collect it. This was after the after the captivity, so he, you know, sort of collected everything together. So what, what year would he, would he have lived uh, this would have been in the 400s BC. Would that have been, I mean, I know the prohibition of changing the scripture, would that, what authority would he have to have done that, I guess, in scripture or in the books? I mean, well, I mean, he was a biblical writer, I mean, so okay. he has. So he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think that just the average Joe could do it. I mean, sure. Or maybe I should say the average Joseph. <laughs> I think it will be very exciting to hear what you have next week. Okay.